I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. It's always good to see how many quantum computing nerds we have in San Francisco. Give yourself a round of applause, nice. As uh, some of you know, I hope, um, we have a, a, a unique event coming up uh, in October. On October 4th, we're doing our very first uh, member summit, which is actually part of our kind of 20th anniversary year events. And we are, most of the programming for that summit is going to be programmed uh, not by us, but by you our members. And so we're taking in applications now for an Ignite Talk series, and then there's going to be an unconference part of it where you can just sign up for certain hours and, and do tables. We will have some uh, presentations from Long Now Board and staff as well, uh, but the most of the programming is going to be by you. And so we've got uh, a bunch of great applications for the Ignite Talks so far, but uh, do check your email. Um, we're going to be announcing the ticketing for the uh, member summit coming up soon. Um, I think in the next, hopefully in the next week or so, and um, the, there'll be a few things on there. You can, uh, you can submit your uh, application to give a talk, and I'd really encourage um, the uh, more females to um, submit talks. We'd really like to get a good gender balance in our talks for that. And um, the, uh, we also have uh, openings for sponsorship of some of the uh, coffees and lunches and dinners for that event. So if you or your company are interested in that, there'll be a link to, uh, to do that as well. Uh, as some of you may also know, we have uh, a new app uh, out so that you can watch uh, all, all of the back catalog of these talks on uh, iOS devices and Apple TV. So feel free, it's a free app, um, and it's a great way to get um, all of these talks while you sit on your couch. Just in case you have any ultimate questions, or penultimate questions, or slightly less than ultimate questions, these cards are there for your use. The ones that make it to the stages, I occasionally say, are the ones that are written very, very clearly, so they can be read in the dark, uh, and they are short. If you write an essay or a series of equations, which might be appropriate tonight, uh, they probably won't make it up here. Quantum computing is one of those categories of um, thinking, conjecture, kind of like many worlds hypothesis, I think, that um, it's been out there for a while as a conjecture. But as far as I know, no philosopher has yet decided that it will cause the extinction of humankind, unlike AIs, for example. But if you compare and contrast, the potential power of AIs and the potential power of quantum computing. Ultimate thoughts do come to mind, and nobody has been thinking them longer and better than our speaker, Seth Lloyd. Thank you very much, Stuart. Um, 
uh, you know, I have to say Stuart is an iconic person in my life. Um, in 1970, my parents tossed my brothers and me in a VW van and drove us from Massachusetts out to Bolinas, California, where we spent a year. And so far as I remember, we spent most of the year uh, just looking at the first whole Earth catalog. <laughs> Actually, my older brother Ben is here in the audience. He can confirm this. Um, <clears throat> and it, it opened up this kind of amazing picture. I mean, uh, for those of you around in 1970, particularly for those of you around in Bolinas in 1970, it was a different world in that time. And it also seemed like it might be a very different world in the future. Alas, a lot of it was more of the same, as it turned out. But, uh, uh, <clears throat> but this idea that the world might be different is a great one. Um, I, I do want to do a, a little shout out to the Long Now Foundation, to Stuart, Danny Hillis, the other people who have made this wonderful foundation. You, you know, there, back in the 1920s and 30s, there was a movement called Futurism. And um, uh, uh, futurism was a movement of thinkers who were thinking, we're going to redesign the future. Um, <clears throat> uh, in fact, the, the, uh, Marinetti, who was one of the main Italian futurists, he wrote a futurist cookbook. I, I couldn't help but being reminded of it as I was past many of the, the fine foodie places in San Francisco today that, with strange dishes. He had a dish that was ball bearings in white paint. Um, <laughs> I've eaten things in restaurants that look like that, actually. <laughs> but uh, futurism is, uh, you know, it, it was unfortunately associated with fascism, actually. And I think one of the problems is that they were trying to redesign human beings in the image of what they thought the future ought to be. Instead of looking at the way that human beings are now and seeing how human beings could be now in the future. So I think it's a fantastic thing that you've started a movement not of futurism, but of nowism. Not Maoism, not Taoism, but nowism. I think this is a wonderful thing, because the way that we are going to actually understand the future is by looking how we live our lives now and what things about the way we might live our lives now may persist in the future. Now, there's a, this is a, a great way to, to try to think about this, is not to look at you know, all the apps and things that we have right now and see what they're going to be like in the future. You know, we'll have an app for everything, uh, 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 including we will no longer have to go to the bathroom. You know, uh, <coughs> but rather uh, um, but looking at things in the, in the past as well. Um, and I'd like to start a little bit about talking about the past. First of all, I, I spent a very, it was a very beautiful day here in San Francisco. I haven't spent enough time in this gorgeous city. It was lovely, and I walked around for five hours instead of preparing this talk, which I should have been doing. <laughs> and I turned a corner over by um, North Beach, and I saw the Golden Gate. And um, uh, I remembered this poem that when I was 10 in 1970, I remember my father, the first time we went to San Francisco, he, he said this poem to me. It's by a native son, Robert Frost, and it goes, Dust always blowing about the town, except when sea fog laid it down, and I was one of the children told some of that blowing dust was gold. Does anybody know this poem? Yeah? No. Well, what is it? <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> all the dust, <clears throat> uh, all, the, all the dust, the wind did sky up into the, the like a, sorry, now I don't know, remember, I was only 10, right? <laughs> <clears throat> like a god in the sunset sky, but I was one of the children told some of that dust was really gold. Such was life in the Golden Gate. Dust, gold dusted all we drank and ate. Uh, but I was one of the children told we all must eat our peck of gold. 
it's, um, it shows you that life is different, right? I mean, uh, it is different in the, the, how the streets are paved. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's still golden around here. This is a very lovely thing about here. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Robert Frost was someone who was speaking about his own life as a child in um, San Francisco in the 1890s. And uh, many things are still the same. I think we should also think of the sameness of life as well as the difference. So, uh, at the risk of mangling another poem, here's a much older poem. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva scura che la dritta vi era smarita. In the, middle of our, my, our, in the middle of my life's uh, journey, I found myself in a dark wood where the direct way was lost. This is the um, opening uh, uh, triplet of, of Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno. Um, and I bring this up because um, uh, in, in the late 1200s when Dante was writing this, was a time like today when at least the European world was being overwhelmed by a new flood of information. Um, and uh, this is, uh, there are a whole bunch of new books, actually ancient books from the ancient Greeks, a bunch of new mathematics was being brought in from the Arab world. And um, all of a sudden, the amount of actual information, the amount of text, the amount of science that was available grew by orders of magnitude. And this just blew people away. And the response was the Renaissance. There was a huge flowering of art, um, of literature, of architecture, People changed fundamentally the way they thought because they were suddenly overwhelmed with new types of information and they had to do something with it. So um, we are also in such, a case, in, in such a situation. We're overwhelmed with information, information of our own making. So um, Avogadro's number is the number of hydrogen atoms in a uh, one gram of hydrogen gas. Um, it's a large number, 6 times 10 to the 23. It's also roughly equal to the number of bits of information that's gener generated by our human species in one year. It's a very large amount of information. Though interestingly, it's rather small compared with the kind of, you know, the amount of information required to describe the atoms and molecules in my body, for instance, which is many, many, many times Avogadro's number. So, but we're now approaching the kinds of information, as, uh, amounts of information as a species that are, are required to describe the microscopic motions of atoms and molecules in a gram of hydrogen. It's a lot of information. Uh, of course, actually, unlike the case of the Renaissance, most of the information we're generating is complete junk. Right? It's just garbage, right? I mean, <clears throat> some weird thing happened, and this happened during our lifetimes. I mean, I think it happened kind of around 1995 or something like that. We went from being um, hunter-gatherers of information. You know, before that time, it was very hard to find information. I mean, I remember when I first got to MIT in 1994 as a professor, I would go to the depths of the library and take out all these books and like look at old journal articles and try to find new ones. And then, you know, longer ago, people would go on ships. They'd cross the ocean, taking months, risking death, to spend years studying with a person who actually knew what was going on. People would do 
a lot to find information. Here you've seen my, uh, see my picture of hunter-gatherers of, of information. You can see how I gave this. This was from a talk I gave at the Rome Science Festival. So hunter-gatherers in Italian are cacciatore e raccoglitore. Uh, I want you to note that, um, and uh, you probably could tell because of my anatomically correct drawing that I'm being critically correct here. The woman is spearing a zero. The man, with his little beard, is gathering berry-like bits from a tree. Uh, <laughs> no doubt you could tell, but you can see this. <laughs> this is my idea of a PowerPoint presentation, okay? <laughs> PowerPoint is Satan, okay? PowerPoint, <laughs> it's a program made for business people to convince other business people of things that aren't true. Um, <laughs> so it's very good for scientists. <laughs> hey, life is too short for bullet points, you know? <laughs> so people went from being hunter-gatherers of information to being filter feeders of information, like this ostrica, an oyster, or this balena, this baleen whale. You know, our job now is we're just bombarded by bits right and left. They're coming past us all the time. We've got to somehow filter out the few useful bits from this gigantic stream of information that's blowing by us at all points. Um, I don't think this is better, really. I mean, it's actually kind of a harder job. I mean, luckily there's an app for that, but uh, <laughs> we don't yet have the Dante app or the Giotto app, at least so far as I can tell. Though now that I've said it, I'm sure somebody's coding it up right now in the audience. So um, this is kind of a sad thing. Um, <clears throat> so uh, 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 of course, luckily we actually have computers to help us, because not only are computers helping generate these vast quantities of, of information, they also provide us with means for kind of filtering through it, for finding patterns in the information, for notifying us when, you know, something is very important for us to do, like when Google spies on me so they can sell me stuff that I don't need. Um, they're using these, all these machine learning algorithms to comb through my entire life history, which they possess, to sell me things that I forgot I even wanted. Um, <clears throat> this is progress, you know? I mean, <laughs> right, I mean, you know, it's, it's like cell phones, right? You know, cell phones, it used to be that you had the landline, right, and you'd dial it up and you'd pick it up and the person on the other side would pick it up, you'd have a crystal clear connection, hello, hello, how are you, right? Now if, like, you have a cell phone, like, for instance, with my daughters, who are teenagers, they have a cell phone, a smartphone, so I have to, I have to text them to let them know that I'm going to call them. And then I text them, and then I call them, and they might pick up or they might not. If I don't text them, they won't pick up. So then they pick up, and then it's like, hello, you're breaking up, I'm sorry. It's a much big improvement. It's so much more efficient these days. Life is just better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sorry, that, that's, I, I didn't mean to go on too much of a rant about information. But I think, you know, one should also be, uh, I, uh, I get like being skeptical of the futurists with their fascist tendencies. I think one should be skeptical of the notion that, you know, information and machine learning and having vast quantities of information is going to solve our problems. I believe it's going to create a lot of problems too, already has. Which brings me to the, the topic that Stuart actually asked me to talk about. <laughs> Instead of going on a rant about apps and app land, um, uh, um, which is quantum computing. Um, so quantum computers are devices that store bits of information on, uh, on individual atoms, molecules, quanta. And what I'm going to do right now, over the next 20 minutes or so, is I'm going to explain to you how these work. Um, actually, I don't quite understand how they work because quantum mechanics is intrinsically weird, strange, counterintuitive, uh, 
Uh, I once uh, went to a James Brown concert. Okay, now how many people know who James Brown is here? Okay, thank God. Like, <laughs> don't know Robert Frost or Dante, but James Brown, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so somebody said, said to James, and he finished the song, and somebody said, James, what are you going to play next? And James said, I don't know, but whatever it is, it's got to be funky. So <laughs> anyway, quantum mechanics is kind of the James Brown of physics. It's... <laughs> It's funky. <laughs> funky, this is a technical term. It means strange, weird, counterintuitive. So how does this work? Why is it strange, weird, and counterintuitive? So first of all, let's just talk about information. So, so what is information? Actually, this is a tough question. And um, I mean, information is, uh, for, for thousands of years, the word information, which is a Latin word, comes from informare, to, to give form to something. Information was what you have in sentences, in words, in paragraphs, in speech. It's something that's thought to have meaning. Um, <clears throat> and uh, then a big breakthrough came in the beginning of the 20th century, around 1920s and 1930s. People realized you could measure information. Now, um, and independent of the meaning that it has, you could measure information, and the unit of information, the smallest amount of information, is a bit, which is a distinction just between two possibilities, zero or one, Yes or no, true or false. And the amount of information is independent of meaning. This, this discovery, by the way, was made that the name that's most closely associated with it is that of Claude Shannon, who was at Bell Labs and subsequently a professor at, at MIT. Um, <clears throat> and Shannon, actually, when he, was, he wrote his master's thesis at Harvard, it was the most uh, best-known master's thesis in the 20th century because he, he showed in his master's thesis how you could construct a digital computer using an electronic circuit. Highly influential. <laughs> and so um, the idea that you can quantify information, and then you can also talk about how information is processed independently of the meaning was a big breakthrough. I mean, the Comcast guy, when he like, you know, connects a cable to your house, his job is to make sure that you, know, you get 20 megabits per second independently of whether you're watching PBS or whether you're watching porn, right? You know, that's his job. And it doesn't matter what the meaning of the information is, it's just he's just trying to get that amount of information down. So often, you know, the advances are made when we, we decide we can discard some useless baggage. And in this case, the notion that information has meaning is something we can actually discard, or is at least distinct from whether we can measure it or not. Actually, we shouldn't discard it because, of course, information having meaning is what gives meaning to everything. Okay, so, but here's another point about information. Information is physical. Information is physical. This is a slogan of a, a colleague of mine, now deceased, Rolf Landauer from IBM. And what he meant was, it's a slogan, so it's not a theory or something like that. What the idea that information is physical means, well, it could mean several things. One is that Whenever we have information, it is actually registered by some physical system. So, uh, for instance, a, in a, an electronic computer, uh, uh, information, a bit is registered by a capacitor. A capacitor is like a little bucket for electrons. You put a whole bunch of electrons over here, out of the bucket, that's a zero. You put a whole bunch of electrons on the bucket, that's a one. And if you go down to the most microscopic level of a single electron transistor, you could have a single electron over here, and you could call that zero, and a single electron over there, you could call that one. And, and in fact, you can build transistors of this form. In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit about using these as a basis for quantum computing. Um, so, so the idea here is that all information, 
uh, is stored on physical systems. And information processing occurs when the, the form of that information changes. So, for instance, if the electron moves from over here to over there, then the bit flips. It goes from zero to one. Um, there's another uh, meaning uh, to this phrase, information is physical, and I'll talk about this bit more at the end of the talk, and that is actually that all physical systems store information. So, you know, an electron's got to be somewhere, though we'll see there's some caveats to that, some quantum caveats, maybe quaviats, we should call them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's, there's two ways to make things quantum, right? You can, you, can like, you can take a letter and you can change it into a Q, like you can quantize Google making it Krugel, right? Well, the other way to do it is you like put funny little brackets around, and the funny little bracket says the thing is quantum mechanical. These are called Dirac brackets. That, that, so the Google with the funny brackets is actually the, the logo of, of Google's quantum artificial intelligence group, and I'll be telling you about a little bit later about some of the group that I, the work that I do with them. Yeah, so, so Q or brackets, first I call first quantization, second one is second quantization. Sorry, that's a, a joke only for physicists, excuse me. <laughs> okay, let's go to the quantum version of this. <clears throat> so in quantum mechanics, indeed, you can have an electron here, an electron there. Quantum mechanics is a branch of physics that describes how things like electrons behave. It's the branch of physics that describes how things that behave at their smallest and most fundamental level. It also describes how the universe as a whole behaves and how things behave at their largest and most fundamental level. At any rate, it's the most fundamental level. As we know, quantum mechanics is kind of weird. So in quantum mechanics, you have an electron, which is a particle. An electron over here, uh, we could call that a zero. Electron over there, you know, we could call that a one. Um, but uh, 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 in, in quantum mechanics, there's this thing called wave-particle duality. I call it a thing because I don't know what else to call it. It's like a principle, a slogan, it's a saying. And what it means is that things like electrons, which are particles, have waves associated with them. So, you know, electron over here, there's a wave associated with the electron being over here. Electron over there, there's a wave associated with the electron being over there. And the wave kind of has something to do with the probability of finding the electron in this particular place. By the way, its wave-particle duality also means that things like light, like light which one normally thinks of classically as being waves, electromagnetic waves, that these are also made out of particles. So a particle of light is called a photon. And the way this would manifest itself is that our eyes are extremely sensitive photodetectors that can actually respond to individual particles of light. So if we turn down the light in this room, things would get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And at a certain point, then rather than just dimming out to nothing, our eyes would be responding to individual photons. So we would see flashes of light, individual flashes of light. Actually, we don't see them because there's circuitry in our eyes that suppresses individual flashes of light because, you know, it would be distracting to be asleep at night all the time and you just keep seeing all these flashes of light and you keep you awake. But we can detect individual flashes of light. Waves are made of particles. Particles have waves associated with that. This is this wave-particle duality. Is this clear? Of course it's not clear. <laughs> Quantum mechanics is weird. Niels Bohr said, once said, anybody who thinks they can contemplate quantum mechanics without getting dizzy hasn't properly understood it. <laughs> so, 
Oh, he said it in Danish, which was more impressive, right? So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but, but uh, uh, it's just confusing. I mean, Einstein famously never believed in quantum mechanics, you know? And Einstein got his Nobel Prize for quantum mechanics, in fact, for the discovery of the notion of the photon. Uh, and I know several living Nobel laureates in quantum mechanics, who I won't name because this is being recorded, um, uh, who also, they got their Nobel Prizes in quantum mechanics, and they don't really believe in it because it's strange and counterintuitive. You know, if you're Einstein, you get to trust your intuition, right? Uh, I mean, if you're me, I don't trust my intuition, so I'm fine with quantum mechanics. My intuition is wrong, usually. Uh, but in Einstein's case, he trusted it, okay? <laughs> Similarly, uh, <laughs> you're my friends, you're not supposed to be laughing at me. <laughs> Laugh with me, please. <laughs> yeah, so, so, I mean, it's counterintuitive for everybody. And it's counterintuitive for the following reason. So, it gets really worse here. So we have these two waves, all right? I have a wave over here, wave over there. Now in quantum mechanics, the waves, just like waves out in the ocean here, when you're waiting out there to go surfing, the waves add up. So if I have two waves that come in, they can interfere with each other. So two waves that come in like this, they'll add up in the middle like that. But these quantum waves can also add up. So if it's okay to have a wave over here, electron over there, here, wave over there, electron over there, then it's totally okay to have a wave that's here and there at the same time. And this is a wave that in some weird, funky, quantum mechanical sense that nobody actually intuits, the electron is both here and there simultaneously. Okay, that is not something we're used, accustomed to. You know, particles, we're not accustomed to seeing them in two places at once, unless maybe it's a soccer ball with Lionel Messi. But, um, but uh, uh, that's an illusion, and here the electron actually is in two places at once. This has no correspondence in real, in our own intuitive macroscopic lives. Um, in fact, um, this is our inability to intuit quantum mechanics comes at a very early age. When, when, I was, um, when my, uh, uh, my daughters were, were very little, when they were infants, um, my friend Liz Spelke, who ran the MIT Infant Cognition Lab, asked if they could participate in some experiments. So like a good MIT professor, I said, yes, of course, please take my daughter, exper experiment on them. <laughs> well, they're very interesting experiments because um, infants, infans in Latin means can't talk, no talking, right? Um, in and fans, no talking. And uh, so they can't tell you what they believe or think. But anybody who's ever had children knows that they pop out of the womb already able to respond to all kinds of stimuli and also able to express a lot. They can express unpleasantness, they can express sadness, they can cry, but they can also express surprise. And um, so you can tell when a baby is surprised from the time that they're just a few days old. So in these, these experiments, what they would do is that they would have a stage. These were experiments of what's called object permanence. They would have a stage and they'd had a curtain and you'd put an object, like a toy, on the stage. You'd draw the curtain, and then the curtain would open again, and the object would be gone. Okay? So, when kids are younger than three months old, this is not surprising to them. It's like, they're just like, okay, you know, curtain closes, toy is there, curtain opens, toy is not there. They're like, well, you know, I guess I haven't been here for that long, you know, I guess this is the way things are. <laughs> Gonna be like this from now on. <laughs> but after, after three months, you know, and this is I've seen in my own children who are being experimented on, after three months, uh, you know, toy there, curtain closes, toy gone, curtain opens, you know, toy's not there, the kid's like, <laughs> they express surprise. 
And actually, I, I guarantee that anybody who here has ever played the game Peekaboo with a small child? Okay, yeah, see, I bunch of, see a bunch of people who played Peekaboo. You know, actually know this, you actually know, have, know this to be the case, because if you try to play Peekaboo with a kid who is younger than three months old, you go like this, right? It's like, you cover up your face, and they're like, oh, daddy left the room. And then you open up, Peekaboo, oh, he's back. <laughs> it's no fun at all, right? <laughs> so, but after three months, and, and of course, in, in like true MIT professor form, I also got my daughter to demonstrate this to a crowd of people about this size once. <laughs> but I shouldn't be admitting this on camera. And <laughs> so, so, you know, you cover up your face, and the child's looking at you, and she's looking at you, and she's looking, and she's looking at you, and you go, peekaboo, and she laughs. She laughs not because she thought you weren't there, but because she knew you were there all along. And when you go peekaboo, you're confirming what she knew. And everybody likes to have what they know confirmed again and again, independent, <laughs> independent of your political party. <laughs> I am not going to go down that road. <laughs> quantum mechanics, there were weirder things even than quantum mechanics, let's just put it that way. <laughs> no, I better stop. <laughs> yeah, so your intuition in quantum mechanics, if you're not looking at something, you're not allowed to know that it's not there. So for instance, in this case of this uh, electron that's here and there at the same time, if you were to look at it, it would either show up here or it would show up there. But you're not allowed to use your classical intuition to say, well, it's either here or it's, or it's there. By the time that you've established object permanence, your intuition for quantum mechanics is just destroyed including Einstein's. Sorry, Einstein, that's just the way it is. I mean, Einstein, you know, he was against quantum mechanics his whole life, wasted 20 years at the end of his life trying to make a classical theory. He should have just sucked it up. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so is, uh, uh, are there any questions? <laughs> is this clear? It shouldn't be clear. <laughs> it's just strange. But this is the basis for quantum computing, because, you know, on a classical computer, electron over, over here, zero. Electron over there, one. Electron cannot be here and there at the same time. It can either be here or there. Quantum computer, electron can be here and there simultaneously. So you can have bits that are simultaneously zero and one. And that's just the way it is. Suck it up. <laughs> so for the last 25 years, I've been working with people to build these kinds of quantum computers and to see what they can do. So let me now move on. And don't worry, the, the, the quiz at the end of the class will be multiple choice. <laughs> Okay, so let's see what this means for computation. So here is, here is a, a my picture of a classical computer, and, and I'm of the generation where, you know, the first computer I programmed was a PDP-8, where you had to, like, key in things individually on the, on the keyboard at an Intel 4044 processor at 8-bit, 32-8-bit word, 32K 8-bit words. And you had to feed it in paper tape. Actually, you had to, like, feed in bits, words, to teach it how to read the paper tape reader. And then when it could read the paper tape reader, it could read in instructions to read the teletype. And then you could talk with it. It didn't have a terminal or anything like that. So, but in a classical computer, you feed in basically tape with the strings of zero and ones. It churns away and processes it. This is like what my vision of classical computers, my youth with tape drives and things like that. And then having uh, performed a set of logical operations on it using ordinary Boolean logic and or not operations, copy operations, then it spits out some answer, which is a function of the input. 
And classical computers doing these logical operations are tremendously powerful. Uh, uh, George Boole, who came up with the notion of doing logic using zeros and ones, the distinction between bits back in the 1840s, um, he, he, wrote this, he wrote this book about using this Boolean logic. He found it was incredibly powerful being able to do basically all the things that computers can do. Right? And he called, modestly called this, entitled this book, The Laws of Thought. <laughs> hey, <laughs> why not? <clears throat> All right, so what's the difference between a classical computer and a quantum computer? So in a quantum computer, the bits that you're feeding in, these bits will look very spooky. They're like, you know, do you know this? There's this paradox about Schrodinger's cat, which is both alive and dead at the same time. So it's got a wave corresponding to alive, a wave corresponding to dead. Some of them looking at these bits like, like a bunch of like malevolent Schrodinger's cats who are being fed into this box. <laughs> anyway, these are supposed to signify that these bits are 0 and 1 at the same time. And that means that the inputs are in all possible values. All possible inputs are being fed into this computer. And this quantum computer, because it's doing everything in so-called quantum parallel, it actually processes them, and it treats each possible bit value as an instruction, and it calculates all possible values. All possible computations can come out. So um, <clears throat> this is called quantum parallelism. Uh, quantum parallelism basically means because a qubit, a quantum bit, can be, take on two values at once, then a quantum computer can do two things at once. So for instance, if the zero says add two plus two, and one says add three plus one, and I put in a qubit, a quantum bit, that is zero and one at the same time, then my quantum computer is adding two plus two and adding three plus one at the same time. And this gives quantum computers a, a actually very large power advantage over classical computers, at least in principle. It's not as large as one might think, because actually the thing is, if you were just, just to look at the output, uh, just, you know, you say you say, oh, just calculate all possible ways of factoring this big number, and you look at the output, you just get some random, the, one, the output that corresponds to some random input, and that's not so useful. But if you're sneaky about it, you can make quantum computers do a large number of different things, some of them which are potentially useful or um, disruptive. The, the difference is, by the way, this, there's a metaphor about this, and, and um, I, I remember talking with Kevin Kelly, who was sitting in the front row about this when I was writing a Scientific American article about quantum computing back in 1995 or something like that. A very useful metaphor like this, is, uh, to understand this, is that a classical computer just goes through a sequence of states, one sequence of states. It's kind of like somebody singing plain song. No, 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 be so mine. Um, but a quantum computer is like a symphony. There are many, many different waves going on at once. Um, this is my, my feeble imitation, by the way, up here as at uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Sorry, I need someone to sing along with me <laughs> in order to get the full symphonic effect. But the, the quantum computer is actually doing many, many lines simultaneously. And the result of the computation comes from the interference of these lines. If you listen to a chord, it has a quality of sound which is very different from just thinking about the individual tones in the chord one by one. So the secret in quantum computation to use this symphonic effect of adding up all these waves that correspond to these different computations in a way that reveals the answer to your problem.
That's about as close as I can come with a metaphor, and we're not going to get closer than metaphors because quantum mechanics is weird. The only way I'd understand it is, actually, there's a quote from Richard Feynman that says, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but if you actually want to understand something about the laws of nature in the, in the more than shallow fashion, you have to learn some math. Uh, <laughs> and in quantum mechanics, this is particularly true because we understand the math of quantum mechanics well, you can develop an intuition for the math about quantum mechanics, and you bet that's all you've got because you don't have an intuition for actually going on. So sorry about that. That's just the way it is. Um, so let's see what quantum computers could do. All right. So quantum parallelism, this ability to do many things at once, there are several quite hard and important problems that quantum computers can actually perform. And they can solve these problems much, much, much more efficiently than classical computers. Um, so, uh, perhaps the best known of these is what's called factoring. This was an algorithm, algorithm due to my colleague Peter Shore from MIT. Um, <clears throat> factoring lies at the basis of public key cryptography. And public key cryptography lies at the basis of buying junk over the internet. Uh, <laughs> therefore, it's very important. <laughs> if Google's going to spy on me to try to convince me to buy junk over the internet, then I better well, damn well be, at a, better be able to buy junk over the internet. So what happens in, in public key cryptography, when I send my credit card to Sweet Maria's to buy green coffee beans, because my brother and I both like to roast green coffee beans from Sweet Maria's, because they're just so much better than buying them at other places, um, then I send them my credit card number. But before they, I do that, what does, happens is Sweet Maria's send me this number, this public key. The public key, I can then I can combine this public key with my credit card number and send it back to Sweet Maria's in a way that only someone who knows the private key, in this case we hope Sweet Maria's, only someone who knows the private key can decode it. And the way this works is you take two large prime numbers, each of about you know, 120 digits long, they're very big prime numbers, they have no factors of their own. Prime numbers are like, you know, three, five, two, do you know the, the, the different joke about the different proofs that all numbers are prime? I can tell because I'm a professor of engineering. So the mathematician's proof goes like this. It says, two is prime, sorry, three is prime, five is prime, seven is prime, therefore by mathematical induction, all odd numbers are prime. Okay. <laughs> all right. The physicist's proof goes, three is prime, five is prime, seven is prime, nine is not prime, but 11 and 13 are prime, so with an experimental error, all odd numbers are prime. <laughs> and then the engineer's proof goes, Three is prime, five is prime, seven is prime, nine is prime. Hey, all the numbers are prime. <laughs> I am a professor of engineering. I'm allowed to tell this joke. <laughs> anyway, the public key is the product of these two large prime numbers, which are the, the secret, this is the unknown secret key. These are prime numbers. So if, if, you, if you gave somebody this public key, this number R, and they could factor it to find P and Q, they could break the code. But no simple classical algorithm can do this. 128-bit numbers is considered to be secure for many decades to come. So, you know, uh, according to classical computation, then you're fine. But even a small quantum computer with on the order of, you know, 10,000 bits able to perform about a million operations uh, would be able to break this code by the, this kind of symphonic effect. A few years ago, another kind of, this is now we're kind of like just more specifically what they can, they can or can't do. Um, uh, some of my colleagues and I um, showed that they could also solve linear equations. If A is a big matrix, B is a big vector, we want to find an unknown vector x. You can find that unknown vector x in time that's logarithmic in the size of the matrix, which is hard to believe, but is nonetheless true. Actually, 
we, uh, uh, to, I'm now descending into geeky jokes, but what the hell, this is a good geeky audience. So uh, when, when this came out, so basically the result is you can, you can solve an n by n set of linear, a, a set of linear equations in n variables in time log n. Um, and uh, uh, afterwards, there was a slash dot thread got started on this. And by the way, in my line of work, having a slash dot thread is like one of the most amazing things that can happen to you. It only happens every now and then. That that I think there were a bunch of disgruntled systems engineers who were doing slash dot threads, by the way. But you know, somebody down the line says, "But well, hold it! You try to solve an equation in n variables. You do that in log n. You can't even read out the answer in time log n." And the next person said, you idiot, if you'd read more than log n of the paper, you'd know how they did it. So, <laughs> so you, guys are, you, guys, you guys are a good geeky crowd. I'm going I'm to amp up the geekitude here. <laughs> this is good. Yeah, this is good. I'm feeling, I'm, I'm, I better not get too loose here. Okay. <laughs> Could be dangerous. I might be talking about you know, politics and quantum computing. <laughs> The last thing which is known um, about, or there are many things that are known, but, but the last major um, application of quantum computers is to stimulate other quantum systems. Um, this is an idea that was proposed by Richard Feynman back in the 1980s. He said, you know, simulating quantum systems like doing quantum field theory, this is a picture of a Feynman diagram. It's like a, a, a snapshot of the kind of events that go on in the Large Hadron Collider, where in this case, like a, a two electrons come in, make a photon, make a virtual electron-photon pair, make another photon, make another couple of electrons. That's the kind of thing this is supposed to mean. And these things are famously hard to tease out on classical computers. It's really actually the same reason why uh, uh, quantum mechanics is counterintuitive to human beings. We think of things as being in one place at a time, of doing Think one thing at what time. Quantum systems are doing oodles of things at once. And this means that not only are quantum dynamics counterintuitive for human beings, they're counterintuitive for classical computers. They're hard for classical computers to simulate. But a quantum computer, because it's already being quantum mechanical, it can simulate these systems very nicely. And around well, more than 20 years ago now, I showed how you could actually do these kinds of simulations of quantum systems. And we actually did simple simulations on simple quantum computers. This is a very useful kind of thing to do if you're a geeky scientist who wants to find out what quantum systems are doing. Um, again, there's a limited set of things that quantum systems can, that quantum computers can do, but many of these are very general, like the solving linear equations. Well, um, uh, the idea here is that basically solving linear equations, you can recast it as a kind of a wave-like problem. And as, when you can recast something as a wave-like problem, then quantum computers, because they're all about waves, they're all over waves, they know from waves, then they can often do it much, 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 much faster than a classical computer. And Peter Shor's fundamental insight about factoring was that factoring could be recast as one of these wave-like problems, and then a quantum computer could actually find these factors. Not all problems can be solved like, like this, but there's some important and useful, or in the case of factoring, disruptive problems that can be solved like this. I, actually, I was um, at, now at the risk of telling more anecdotes, what the heck. So uh, at the, um, in 1995, I was at the first government meeting at DARPA to discuss funding quantum computing, and this guy named Keith Nelson from the NSA got up. And um, he's a very sweet guy, Keith Nelson. Actually, I, I've met many people from the NSA. I must say that, that I think the NSA gets a bad rap. I mean, Snowden pointed out that they were spying on all of us. Who knew? 
I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe it. I'm just shocked, shocked. <laughs> I mean, really, come on, look. But that's their job, right? And I know the people at the NSA are they are spying on us to try to protect us from terrorists. And I don't think that they're spying on us to you know, sell us junk over the internet, at least not yet. Whereas you know, people like Google and Amazon and Facebook, they're spying on us all the time to sell us junk over the internet. Now, which is, which is, you know, which is more harmful? Like, I guarantee you that right now out there, there's some terrorist, we'll make him a he, I'm sorry, but there are women terrorists too. We don't want to be sexist about this. This terrorist is looking at his computer, this pop-up window has come up, and the pop-up window says, you just bought two tons of nitrogen-based fertilizer. People who bought two tons of nitrogen-based fertilizer are like these detonators. <laughs> you know? <laughs> the NSA is not enabling terrorism, is all I can say. <clears throat> yeah, so Keith got up, <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he said, yeah, so Keith got up and he said, I'm authorized to tell you that the NSA is interested in quantum computing. And then he sat down again. And everybody went, oh my God, oh my God, somebody from the NSA said something. And it caused such a stir that he got up again and he said, well, I'm a believe I'm authorized to tell you this as well. Of course the NSA is interested in quantum computing because if there were quantum computers, then people could break these codes. And we've been sending out messages using these codes for decades now, and that would mean a whole bunch of information that's supposed to be top secret will now be not secret. And because our primary mission is to protect the secrets of the country, then we, were, we would want, actually what we really, really like is that quantum computers not be possible. But if, we, if, they, if they are possible because of our secondary mission, we want the first one. Look, right, so. <laughs> the secondary mission being, of course, spying on other people. So, um, actually, by the way, this is a great kind of sponsor to have. Like, uh, uh, like, you know, they call up, they say, how's it going? You say, oh, it's terrible, everything's so decoherent, it's not working at all. They say, great, great, that's wonderful. <laughs> 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 it only lasted for a few years, but it was, they, they were golden years, golden years. <laughs> okay, so as I'm suggesting, we've been building simple quantum computers since 1994, uh, 1995 or 1996. My, my claim to one of the reasons I got tenure at MIT is I made the first proposal for how you build a quantum computer back in 1993 by basically taking atoms and zapping them with light in a very, you know, if you, the basic notion is if you take some atoms and you, you zap them with light in the right fashion, then you can get them to compute. I used to say, uh, I was once at a, a wedding of my cousin, and, uh, who is a cultural anthropologist, and the cultural anthropologist at the table asked me what I did. One of them was actually Barbara Ehrenreich, who is a very famous anthropologist and, and popular writer. And I said, oh, um, we take atoms and we exploit their natural information processing ability to make them compute. And they were like, oh my god, that's so, so politically incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I say no society for prevention of cruelty to atoms. But no, I didn't say that there. So I had to, to re-explain what we did. And um, uh, so I said, oh, well, you know, we kind of massage the atoms and we ask them to compute. And you know. <laughs> afterwards, Barbara Ehrenreich's companion, who is this elderly African-American activist from Greensboro, he came to me and he said, put his arm around my shoulder and said, Seth, the next time you describe what you do, I suggest you say, you empower atoms to compute. <laughs> hey, it was a great moment in my life. I went like, like, like one moment I was an exploiter of atoms, a nanosecond later I was an empowerer of atoms. Okay, so how do you empower atoms to compute? <laughs> so building quantum computers. So as I say, we've been doing this on a simple level for um, the last... Uh, 
last 20 years or so. I mean, we can have an electron here or there, and we can subject them to electric fields, have them move around. These are good quantum bits. Another good qubit or quantum bit is nuclear spin. Spin up, we call zero. Spinning like that, we call one. And spinning sideways like this is zero and one at the same time. We can have an atom in its ground state, its lowest energy state, its spherically symmetric state. This is like a hydrogen atom here. Or we can then excite it to its first excited state, where the electron is here and there at the same time. That's a good qubit. Uh, we could have a photon that's polarized like this, so its electric field is wiggling like that. We call that zero. Photon polarized, so its electric field is wiggling vertically. We call that one. And photon polarized, so its electric field is going like this or like that. That's zero and one at the same time. One of the coolest ones of these is um, superconducting circuits. These are actually macroscopic systems that you can almost see with the naked eye. You have a loop, a superconducting loop, like made out of aluminum, which is uh, if in this loop at very low temperatures, current will just go around forever like this. You interrupt it with this little X, which is what's called a Josephson junction. I have scurrilous Josephson stories, but I'm running out of time, so I won't tell them. Uh, and uh, so supercurrent going all around like that forever is a zero. Supercurrent going around like that forever is a one. And supercurrent going around this way and that way simultaneously, which I have no idea how they can do that, but it does. That's zero and one at the same time. And there are lots of more. Anything goes, basically. And then you can, if you've got these qubits, then you need to have them interact with each other and control their interactions to make them perform logic operations, like AND operations, OR operations, NOT operations, copy operations, which, as Boole showed, are enough to actually uh, build up any computation. And in fact, if you can just do ordinary logic operations, the kind that appear in any run-of-the-mill computer, classical computer, and you can put your qubits in the state 0 and 1 at the same time, then that's it. That's all you need to be able to do. You can do this by putting atoms in an optical lattice. This, these are uh, little mirrors that confine the electromagnetic field and allow it to talk to these atoms here. You can have nuclear spins in a molecule. Do, by the way, I hope that you can see that I, I, I hope everybody's following my beautiful, realistic pictures of, of molecules and atoms, like my, my gender-specific and realistic pictures of hunter-gatherers. There's a molecule. It's got nuclear spins in it, like carbon-13s along the backbone. They're all interacting with each other. And if you... Um, massage them with light in the right way and ask them to process information, then you can empower them to compute. <laughs> or you could actually put a bunch of these superconducting quantum bits in integrated circuits. This is actually a very promising method because you can build, it's been shown now that you can build very large-scale large -scale integrated circuits with thousands of quantum bits in them and then uh, you can actually control them this way. And, you know, though we've been muddling along from two qubits back in 1996 to, you know, a few dozen qubits right now, because of advances in the technologies of doing this over the next couple of years, we should have, you know, 50 to 5,000 qubits over the next five to 10 years. Actually, 50 qubits we're going to have in a year or two. So I think the prognosis is good for actually building larger-scale quantum computers. These are still tiny quantum computers. I mean, as Stuart was saying, there's a lot of hype. Though actually, may I say, quantum computing is less hyped than things like you know, nuclear fusion and things like that. I mean, I, I have this constant experience with my colleagues at MIT is that you talk to the professor, this is about something like photosynthesis, because it turns out that quantum computing and photosynthesis have a lot in common, and photosynthesis uses funky quantum effects like coherence and entanglement to attain high efficiency. Anyway, you talk to one of my colleagues, a professor you, always says, oh, this method of, of um, collecting light from the sun, this is incredible, you know, within 10 years, this is how we're going to be harvesting all our energy. And then you go talk to the graduate students and they say, it doesn't work. 
It never has worked. It never will work. So <laughs> you must always be skeptical about these things. But in the last few years, because of these breakthroughs of making large-scale, for instance, in making large-scale superconducting integrated circuits, we're going to be at this scale in the, uh, soon. I'm, I'm making technological predictions is a mugs game, but I, I think it's pretty, pretty clear this is what's going to happen. And in addition to these, I don't, I'm running out of time, I won't go through most of this, but I'll, I'll go through it briefly. In addition to these general purpose quantum computers, the kinds of things that could do factoring, factor large numbers, solve linear equations, there are specialized ones. There's a famous co a company called D-Wave in Canada that makes what's called a quantum annealer that has thousands of quantum bits in it. It's not doing general purpose quantum computing, and there's some controversy over whether it's able to solve hard problems, but it's definitely being very quantum mechanical. Um, you can have, <laughs> hey, look, look, we're, Everything is quantum mechanical, it's just that some things are more quantum than others, right? That's just the way it is, okay? Turns out that photosynthesis is very quantum mechanical, so. <clears throat> um, integrated optical electronics, you can take things that, that would have, uh, a few years ago, would have required optical tables the size of several football fields to guide the lasers and the photons through. You can put them on a chip due to technologies, switching technologies from uh, uh, the telecommunications industry. So now you can have hundreds or thousands of quantum bits on chip. And there's also a fascinating field of making, using funky quantum effects such as coherence and this effect called entanglement to make much more accurate quantum sensors, imagers, and detectors. Um, so I just mentioned these in passing. Um, so what are we going to do with these, uh, these small-scale quantum computers? And this is, I think, what, what Stuart was asked me to want to talk about. So given that we're not, <laughs> sorry, I know I'm taking longer, to, getting distracted, not talking about what you asked me to talk about. But <clears throat> when we have these small-scale quantum computers, say 50 to 500 qubits, forget even about 5,000 quantum bits, which we're going to have soon, we won't be able to factor these large numbers and strike fear into the heart of uh, agencies with three letters in their names, assuming that they have hearts, which they don't. Um, but uh, 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 we will be able to do something that's very interesting. This is my own personal take on the most interesting thing to do with these. I mean, quantum simulation, by the way, simulating quantum systems, that's an extremely important application. Um, it's no secret around here that one of the most important applications of computers is machine learning. Uh, we were talking about this at the beginning of this talk about using computers to have, have them apply their computational ability to sort through vast amounts of data, to sift through, and to filter out the most interesting patterns that they can find. This is a very hard problem, which is why you know, places like Google and Amazon and Facebook are paying high salaries for people who know about machine learning. It's just hard to do. Quantum computers could do much better than classical computers for a variety of tasks. I mean, here's a typical kind of machine learning task. You give, them a, a, you give a whole bunch of samples of handwriting. You say, this is a five, this is a five, this is a five, this is a seven, this is a seven, this is a seven, this is a seven. Now, what are these three right here? Five or seven, right? That's called supervised learning. Um, uh, or with voice recognition, you say, uh, okay, you want to have something that recognizes people's voice. This is actually a more complex problem because, in fact, what happens in your smartphone, which is actually pretty darn good at voice recognition, it's adaptive and it learns over time from feedback between what you're trying to say and what it thinks you're saying and what you say you're saying. It learns how you're actually speaking. This is a combination of what's calling, called supervised and unsupervised learning. These systems have gotten much better. A few years ago, MIT, well, in, around 1998, MIT replaced all their, their operators with a computer system. Now, 1998, I don't know if you remember, voice recognition sucked. 
Um, it was terrible. But because some smart-ass uh, engineering, electrical engineering or computer science professor convinced the administration, for the next five years, you'd have this experience. You'd call up and you'd say, I'd like to speak with Jane Smith. And a computerized voice would say, now ringing Mary Lefkowitz. If this is not the right number, press nine. Beep. Jane Smith. Now ringing Huang Zhang. Beep. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. This lasted for years. <laughs> but now they're good. They're good. <laughs> I mean, I taught, when back in the 80s, when I was a, I was a postdoc at Caltech working with Murray Gelman, I, I went to go visit John Hopfield, who's one of the founders of machine learning. And at, back at that point, a lot of these algorithms for machine learning had already been developed, but they, computers were too small, the data sets were too small, and they were just crapping out. And Hopfield said, you know, if we had computers that were a million times more power, powerful and data sets that were a billion times bigger, this would work, I swear. <laughs> he said that. And now we actually have computers that are a million times more powerful. Your smartphone is a million times more powerful than a, uh, you know, a supercomputer of the 1980s. And then we have trillions of times the data, more than trillions of times the data. So they're working now. So the, the kinds of things that you could apply quantum computers to that would actually be much, much faster are things like cluster finding, finding clusters of points together, looking at topological features, like here's a bunch of data. It's got a hole in it, right? It's kind of weird because it's actually all holes, but we can tell that it has a hole in it. A hole is a topological feature. It's something that's invariant under distortion. So how do you find that? Or for that matter, financial prediction. You know, you know, are we right here in this little fluctuation or are we right there? <laughs> Makes a big difference, right? <laughs> in terms of how you're gonna invest your money. It turns out because of this ability of quantum computers to solve these large sets of linear equations, that they're able actually to do these kinds of analyses much better than classical computers. And even a small-scale quantum computers with a few hundred qubits able to do 10,000 operations could kick serious machine learning butt. Okay. So, and, and this is shows where we are. Um, this is Moore's Law. This is the only, uh, people here have probably seen this so many times. You know, back in 1950, we had vacuum tubes. Then the size of the uh, components of computers, the, of, the ch of the transistors, has been going down steadily, halving in size basically every couple of years. We're right now here, we're at a, a few, ten, about the 10, 15 nanometer scale for uh, feature size on, on computers. At the same time, you know, the little quantum computers we've been building, we started at the atomic scale empowering atoms to compute. Back at, that was actually back in the days when we were exploiting them, but around here we started empowering them. <laughs> <laughs> so Moore's Law is not broken down yet, but pieces of it are breaking down. The clock speed of computers has topped out at a few gigahertz about 10 years ago. Otherwise, if you try to run them faster, you melt the chip. The component size is getting down. Basically, we're kind of forced to go and look at the atomic scale for building these devices. And I think that we're gonna have a good shot at doing it. As I say, we've already been doing it for decades now. The question is now whether we can build large-scale integrated quantum computers. Okay, so uh, Stuart's looking nervous there. So, uh, uh, oh no, he's, he's okay? Oh, you were just looking at your watch. <laughs> he's got an important date. <laughs> okay, all right, so I want you don't, it's okay if I don't rush it? Okay, good, I'll keep on, keep on going, keep on going, but I'll be, I'll be done soon. Okay. So at any rate, so I'm now, I haven't tried to convince you that quantum computers are going to be the next best thing since sliced bread. In fact, even if everything that I say were to succeed, and I don't know if it's going to succeed, I've just given you my opinion, which could easily be wrong, see the part about my intuition earlier on, um, about what's likely to happen with these quantum computers over the next few years. You may note that these are problems that are, the problems they're going to solve 
are not the kinds of things that are completely going to transform what we're going to do. Um, uh, but they could make a big difference in how we're uh, processing information in ways that are important to us, like, for instance, in machine learning. And the things that are important to me, like finding out how, how quantum systems and other physical systems behave. Um, and in effect, you know, quantum computers, if you actually look at what drives Moore's law, it's not just like, oh, people are building transistors smaller and smaller. There's a whole bunch of Moore's law basically for instrumentation and control. More precision about making, making the wires, better precision on the lithography, electron lithography, being able to actually position the stages on which the chips are sitting down to the sub nanometer scale, that's extremely important. All these advances have been going along that have made Moore's Law like this, and these are the same advances in precision instrumentation and precision control that make quantum computing possible. So I think we're in a good space for quantum computing. Um, not gonna, you know, just completely, you, you wouldn't want to run Word on a quantum computer. In fact, it would be an insult to the quantum computer. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't, I, I already I slagged off on Microsoft earlier today. I should, I should, that's enough, I need to go on other people. How about open source? No. <laughs> quantum open source, it's a good idea, actually. Anyway, yeah, I have no more, no more quaps to give you here. Uh, sorry, <laughs> quantum apps. So, <laughs> let's move back. Let me finish off by moving back to the larger scale. So, um, you recognize because now the, the typeface has changed that I'm now back at the big picture here. So, what's going on here? <laughs> uh, uh, the, uh, what's going on? And this is something I basically... Um, discovered by trying to learn how to build quantum computers when I started doing this about you know, two and a half decades ago, is that basically anything can store information. All atoms, all molecules store information. And quantum mechanics has this neat feature that in addition to having this wave-like nature, it makes the universe digital at bottom. So that you know, every elementary particle, its spin registers a bit of information, a quantum bit. You know, the polarization of a photon registers a quantum bit. Electron here or electron there, that registers a bit of information. These register bits of information. Every elementary particle, every atom, every molecule carries around with it bits of information. Actually, this has been known for, 100, for 150 years because the information required to describe the motions of atoms and molecules in a gas is what we call entropy. It's this funny quantity that basically measures the disorder in a system. But it's information effectively registered by the atoms and molecules. <clears throat> and actually, when these particles move and interact, then these bits flip. So zero particle over here, electron over here, moves over here, zero goes to one. The bit flips. Two particles holding bits of information on their spins, they bonk off of each other, their spins flip. Then they're performing more complicated logic operations. But these bits are flipping no matter what. So, you know, when we're building quantum computers, we're not exploiting them to make them compute. We're basically taking their natural information processing ability, and by massaging them in the right way, we're empowering these atoms and elementary particles to compute. They were already effectively computing. We're just getting them to do a different kind of computation by asking them very nicely from the one that they were doing before. I'm protecting myself here. <clears throat> okay. So, <clears throat> the interesting thing about this is, you know, you know we are... 
we're, you know, I, as I started off, we're now in this, this stage of, sad stage of human development of our species, which we may not survive, where we're now, you know, in the stage of trying to extract meaningful information from a huge sea of bits. These are our poor hunter-gatherers. They've now bought smartphones, and they don't know what the heck to do. <laughs> Their hunting-gathering app is not on there. <laughs> where is the berry bush app? It is not there. <clears throat> Actually, if you look at, I mentioned before about the Renaissance, but in fact, if you look further back, there was a much, much more important information processing revolution, which is actually the development of life itself. Somehow along the way, and we have no idea how this happened, we know much more about the beginning of the universe than we know about the origins of life. There was this free energy out there carrying information, and something somewhere figured out the way to sequester this energy to make useful information. Here are pieces, here's a double-stranded piece of DNA. Here are these atoms and molecules carrying bits of information. The DNA says a set of instructions for the metabolism of the cell to process this information. It's about information processing. Somewhere along the way, life itself arose and managed to start extracting meaningful information from its environment. And by meaningful, I mean information that allows it to survive and reproduce. That's about as close as I'm going to get to meaning here. But I think you'll agree that for your average cell, that's meaningful. Maybe you don't, actually. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so um, uh, looking at this long now, you know, the now has been lasting for a long time. I hope that for the human species, it lasts for a long time, too. Um, but this, the now of, of processing information, of extracting meaningful information from our universal surroundings, that's been going on almost as long as the universe itself. I mentioned before that photosynthetic organisms are basically performing a kind of quantum computation. They're using funky quantum effects to get high efficiency for energy transport. So we should be encouraged, you know. Okay, we're inundated by this sea of information right now. Maybe we're losing the battle, but maybe in the future we'll win it. And so, um, indeed, human life has become what life has always been, an exercise in machine learning, <laughs> classical machine learning, quantum machine learning. Uh, it's all about that, and thank you. <laughs>
that carries the energy of the light. And this exciton hops from chromophore molecule to chromophore molecule until it gets to a reaction center where it can be turned into useful chemical energy. That's kind of how photosynthesis works. But it turns out that this exciton is basically a quantum particle. And instead of going just one route through this photosynthetic antenna to get to the reaction center, it takes multiple routes simultaneously. And the efficiency of motion comes from the interference between these paths. So it's actually using quantum mechanics in a very sophisticated way. I mean, I found this out uh, in 2007. I picked up the New York Times one morning. It said, green sulfur bacteria performing quantum computation. And I was like, oh, that's the most ridiculous crackpot thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and um, at our, our quantum group meeting, we discussed this. We all thought this was hysterically funny. But it was from a very reputable group in uh, the Graham Fleming group at Berkeley. And um, you know, femtosecond spectroscopy, really beautiful work. And so we went and looked at it. And you know, uh, my colleague, Alan Asperger-Guzik, and I figured out that although it wasn't performing quantum computation in the way that the Fleming group thought, it was actually doing what I just described, that, that it's using this quantum interference to actually increase the efficiency of photosynthesis. And more recently, with Angela Belcher and Munji Buendi at MIT, we've been actually building artificial, I would, I would call them man-made systems, except they're women and virus-made systems, um, to, uh, do, uh, to try to emulate this high efficiency in photosynthesis. So I think it's a, it's a real possibility. And this is a great use of quantum information technology. How are viruses involved in that? Um, viruses are involved in everything, uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, the, uh, basically Angela, who is a MacArthur Prize winner at, at MIT, she convinces these viruses, she empowers them, to uh, grow different kinds of proteins on their, on their skeletons their, so that their, um, you can attach different kinds of chromophores to them. And by attaching different kinds of chromophores, then you can get them to behave like artificial photosynthetic things. When I first met her, I said, I actually said, oh, we're, we're doing this. We're attaching these chromophores to viruses. I said, oh, you know, if you could attach a quantum dot to the end of the virus, that would be great. You know, quantum dot is just a little piece of semiconductor material. It's optically active. Light comes in, exciton hops around, it falls into the quantum dot. Quantum dot emits light. And then you could figure out, you know, you could be harvesting this light. You also have a virus that's shooting light out of its ass, which I think would be a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> I said this to a BBC reporter. She said, no, Seth, no, no, Seth. It's like, comes out of the top. It's a magic wand. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Let's move on quickly. I'm a biologist. Viruses don't have asses. <laughs> yeah, how do you know which end? That's a good question. I should have brought that up. A lot of these things come to efficiency. Uh, Kevin Kelly's question is, how energy efficient is quantum computing? Um, you were sort of suggesting as we got into this that the classical com computation is uh, energetically pretty demanding. Is this going to be a, a big step function in terms of just a little less energy for a lot more computation? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So actually, at the level of sort of individual spins flipping or electrons moving from here and there, um, quantum computers are extremely energy efficient. In fact, you can, you can derive the minimum amount of energy you need to, say, to move an electron from here to there in a particular time, and quantum computers saturate these physical bounds. Um, so at the kind of on-chip level, the quantum computers are extremely efficient. However, to control them, to zap them with lasers or with microwave pulses to make them behave in this fashion, that still takes a fair amount of energy. However, the on-chip dissipation in quantum computers is extremely tiny. Um, so it, there are lessons perhaps to be learned for just classical computation to minimize on-chip dissipation just for classical computation. Hmm. Hmm. Um, okay. 
I'm going to go through some of the kind of technical questions here. Josh Effort asks, researchers at Oxford recently achieved quantum logic gates with 99.99% precision. How far away are we from quantum computers breaking contemporary encryption? Um, yeah. And presumably, the NSA is, uh, wants the first, uh, <laughs> as you yeah. said, and when will they get the first? Well, actually, yeah, so probably a good sign they're about to get there is if my colleagues or me start to be disappear. <laughs> Suddenly you can't find me any longer. That I mean, might be a they, sign they, that they're getting close. <laughs> they kill you or you, you disappear? I don't know how this works. I don't know the mechanism. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's a very good question. So, so this is one of the reasons why, why I'm confident, pretty confident that we're going to have medium-scale quantum computers in the near future. So people have now can make these logic gates with you know 99.999% efficiency, which is more than one needs to make a large-scale quantum computer if you can do that many, many, many billions of times over. Um, to do actually, uh, in quantum computers, you actually have to deal with errors and noise. Mm -hmm. And if you want to make a quantum computer that is going to do error correction and have redundancy, you need to have many-fold redundancy, like 100-fold redundancy for each bit. Can you get many, many-fold with quantum because it's so parallel? You can, but it's also the thing is because quantum computers, just for the same reason that they're able to do these many things at once, it's harder to do error correction. Ah. Like in classical error correction, if you have threefold redundancy, like like zero 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 one one one, those are your codes for zero and one. So if one bit gets flipped, you can you know correct one third of the errors, errors that are like one third of the time. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good error correction. Quantum computers, you need many many more quantum bits. So I think it's, it's going to be a harder problem to build a quantum computer that will factor large numbers where you need full-blown error correction. That's why I was focusing in this talk on the near-term, uh, more near-term five to ten-year goals for quantum computing, which is doing things like machine, quantum machine learning. Okay, quantum machine learning. Uh, machine learning is already sort of tied into forms of artificial intelligence getting better and better. Yeah. And uh, some people are excited, and some people are worried, and some people are both. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you, <laughs> you're that. saying that I'm not going to contradict what you're saying, that we should be worried about quantum computers. It's like... uh, just that um, is the prospects of pretty deep AI uh, accelerated by all this. Well, um, yes, it is accelerated, potentially accelerated by this. But can I just say this? I mean, I know Stephen Hawking is a really smart guy, and Elon Musk is a well-known guy. But the fact that they believe we're in about other to be, fields, uh, right? <laughs> but the fact that they believe we're about to be taken over by giant neural networks is just—you know—I'm sorry, this is just not going to happen. I mean, it's like—I mean, maybe we should worry about it, but it's not going to happen. I mean, actually, in fact, the, when you talk to people in brain and cognitive sciences, in fact, the if we look at what's going on in the brain, it turns out what's going on in the brain is much, much more complicated and varied and detailed than what's going on in these large-scale neural networks. And they're not going to actually start thinking like human beings, which is maybe a good thing, um, given the political process. No, sorry. <laughs> no, there was, so I don't think one should be worried about that. But I mean, you know, this, the, if you look at the quantum versions... We should be excited about it. So what should, we, what should we be excited about, given all this? Well, so I mean, so let's look at the, you know, the... Um, there's this thing called deep learning. I'm sure people have heard of deep learning here. I only heard about deep learning a few years ago um, when we started to do this, this quantum machine learning. And at first, I was really excited. It's like, wow, now like artificial intelligence is going to tell us deep things like you know, truths about love and life and you know, happiness. And then it turned out it was just deep learning is just it's like a, a neural network with many layers. You know? 
which can recognize handwriting a lot better. So uh -huh. if, <laughs> if you, and other things as well. I mean, I don't mean to, it's great, it's a wonderful thing if you look at the stuff. I mean, working with the Google Quantum Artificial Intelligence Group with Hart McNevin there, who's you know, one of the main feature people in deep learning, they can do remarkable things. And doing the quantum version of this, deep quantum learning, mm -hmm. which we have to do just because deep quantum learning sounds so cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm. <laughs> that, that, that's a good reason to do things, by the way. <laughs> because you can. Um, what does uh, deep mean in that case, actually, do you think? Yeah, so deep means the reason that deep learning succeeds better than the kind of shallow learning is if you make a deep neural network with many, many layers, ah, then it can actually... More symphonic in your terms. It's more, yeah. So, right, the classical version, first of all, can, you know, the shallow ones can't compute the way out of a paper bag, but mm -hmm. in a deep network, you can encode any kind of quantum, uh, sorry, of classical logic circuit in it, so it can effectively, in principle, do anything a computer can do, which mm -hmm. is a lot. Mm -hmm. And similarly, in a deep, you know, a universal deep quantum learner, you have a, would have a deep quantum network. And by the way, people are building these devices right now. These are one of these special purpose devices I mentioned with thousands of qubits. Then it could actually do anything a quantum computer could do. So in the same way that quantum systems can generate patterns that are weird and strange and funky and counterintuitive and we can't generate them classically, then maybe these quantum computers can also learn patterns that are strange and funky that we can't learn classically. So hence you're and other people saying that quantum can help learn about quantum. I mean, that was sort of a fine yeah. point back when. It can help learn about quantum. Maybe it could also help learn about, I don't know, life, love, truth, happiness. Well, yeah, and beyond 42. The theme. <laughs> biology is fraught uh, and has been fraught and is showing signs of being fraught you know, almost forever so that, you know, Ecology is not a predictive science. It's an observational science. There's no equations that, that hold up. Uh, the brain is still uh, pretty much, you know, you have cartoon neuronal networks, but they are cartoons compared to what's in here. Uh, we have a question in here about uh, brain and quantum, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, the immune system. I mean, all these biological systems defy analysis because of the levels of complexity. Is quantum going to be a window into that? Well, um, I mean, I think there's a good reason why these systems defy analysis. It's actually, Say why. Well, so, so um, it's actually one of the reasons why human beings are often mysterious to each other and why we're often mysterious to ourselves. So in, in Alan Turing's original paper about Turing machines, which are the archetypical idea of a digital computer, he was trying to understand what's called the halting problem, sorry, the uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which is this, this deep piece of logic which is hard to understand, that basically says when you have the capacity for self-reference, then you can no longer understand what you're going to do or predict what you're going to do. So Turing proved what he called the halting problem, which is that he developed these Turing machines. They're models for digital computation. He showed that they actually have the capacity for self-reference. So for instance, say, Consider the operating system in your smartphone. The operating system is a computer program, and it goes and looks at all the other programs, all the apps in your smartphone, and it allocates time and space for these apps to function. Now, it itself is also a program in the computer. So these programs have numbers, right? So, you, you know, this, the, the operating system is saying, what, what does program number five need? What does program number 723 need? Let's suppose its, its number is 42, right? So it says, what does program number 42 need? That means it's asking a question about itself. And what Turing effectively showed is that if you can ask questions about what you yourself are going to do, you won't be able to predict it. 
So the operating system, the computer, will not, because it can ask, it's capable of asking the question, what will program number 42 do? A lot of the time, it won't be able to answer it, which is why computers crash and why you know, they're also intrinsically unpredictable. And you know, human beings have this capacity, and, the iron, and also, interestingly, the immune system has this capacity. I mean, autoimmune diseases come because the immune system, which has this capacity to recognize self versus other, which is, in fact, what the immune system is supposed to do, because it has that capacity, then sometimes it must fail mm -hmm. to perform this recognition. So I think a lot of this inscrutability of biological systems and of human beings and, and computers themselves comes from the fact that they're complicated enough to be able to ask the question, you know, what am I going to do? And then the answer is, heck if I know. <laughs> but you seem to be saying that financial markets are not of that level of complexity, that they can be predictable uh, in a quantum mode. Uh, uh, no, I was just, that was just like part of a fundraising pitch. Ah, I, don't, I don't think that I... Hey, that's why people do this stuff, right? Yeah, for, for money, right? Let's be realistic. No, I think actually financial markets are, are, are inscrutable for a rather similar reason. I mean, there, there are a lot of people trying to predict them, mm -hmm. so it's like has this kind of inward self-looking uh, aspect. And, and any prediction that starts to win is immediately destroyed because other people copy it and then they're in. Uh, Michael Taff asks, what about using entanglement for instantaneous, very long distance internet-like communications? Can we entangle? Okay, so we actually didn't talk about entanglement here. So entanglement is a, this funky quantum effect. So if you have a one quantum bit, it can be in two states at once, zero, zero and one simultaneously. So if you have two quantum bits, they can together be in a funny quantum state where say they're you know, zero and one and one and zero at the same time. This is a funny, they're in a correlated state or anti-correlated. I see this one and it's one, this one is zero. Hmm. If I see this one and it's zero, this one is one. But they're just in one state. They're in zero, one and one, zero at the same time. This is really hard to understand. And it also gives the illusion that you can actually communicate very rapidly. So if I have these, the, the, suppose that this, you have one of these qubits and I have one, and I go and I measure it, and I find that it's zero, then it appears to our intuition that instantaneously yours has gone from being either zero or one or zero and one at the same time to being just one. Right? So it looks to our classical intuition as if by doing something over here, I've changed something over there. But the fact is you can't use this funky effect entanglement to send information. You can only take advantage of existing correlations. So you can't use entanglement to send information, for instance, faster than the speed of light. Well, that's handy. What can you use entanglement for? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, my colleague Charlie Bennett said, it's kind of like entanglement, so, so things being here and there at once is already counterintuitive and baffling. So entanglement is something that you use to confuse and baffle people who don't understand quantum mechanics. That's, <laughs> well, that's pri primary <laughs> use. <laughs> so it looks like a name, Dav Yaganuma asked, can you speak about the Chinese quantum satellite experiment that just launched? Yeah, so, so a number of uh, countries, including the United States, China, and, um, and Canada, actually, who is a, Canada is a powerhouse in quantum information. They'd be winning gold medals at the Olympics if it were an Olympic sport. Why? Uh, uh, they chose, uh, chose about uh, 15 years ago to really invest a very substantial amount of money. Government uh, money. Government, but also uh, Mike Lazaridis, the head of Research in Motion, uh, donated about $400 million over the years uh, to uh, studies of quantum information, both at the Perimeter Institute in Waterloo and the University mm -hmm. of Waterloo. So Canada's invested a lot of money, and they have, have also done preliminary 
ground to satellite quantum information experiments. So um, uh, yeah, you know, this is actually, um, there's something, there's a, a kind of sadly or unfortunately named feature in quantum mechanics called quantum supremacy. Um, I know this is, this is so politically incorrect, I just can't, I can't believe it. So the idea, but it's an interesting notion. It's this idea that a quantum mechanical system can generate events with probabilities that no classical system could do. Um, and then somebody unfortunately called this quantum supremacy, that the quantum system... Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, well, of course, I mean, it could, it could have the advantage, like, if, you know, if Trump is elected president, well, then we could say, we need to restore America's quantum supremacy by investing in quantum information. But... <laughs> in which case, you're cool. Yeah, we're good, right? We're good to go. <laughs> yeah, so, it's an inter so these experiments are very interesting. So they're trying to distribute entanglement, this long-distance funky quantum correlation, from ground up to satellite. So... Um, you know, up from ground up to many miles up in the, above the atmosphere. Actually, the hardest part is going through the atmosphere because the atmosphere is the most absorptive part. Once you get above right. like 10 miles, actually, it's, it's, there's almost no Clear absorption. Clear sailing from there on, right. Yeah, so I mean, basically you take a laser, you send a photon through a little, uh, like a funky, nice, uh, cool looking uh, colored crystal, and a photon will then split into two photons each with half the energy, and these two photons are entangled with each other. And then you can keep one of them around in like a fiber optic cable and send the other one Ooh. up to a satellite, okay. and you can establish entanglement over many, many miles. Actually, people have been doing this routinely over distances of hundreds of kilometers already, mm -hmm. like between different Canary Islands and mm -hmm. things like that. So yeah, so it's a perfectly doable thing. Once you do it, you can use it to do things like quantum cryptography to establish secret keys, sending them up to the, the satellites. Can you do, hmm. one of the things I noticed with the institute you're mostly uh, doing in Cambridge now is things like sensing. How, what, what is sensor capabilities expanded by all this? Yeah, so actually entanglement, if you, I mean, so I guess I, I, was, uh, I, was, I was kind of saying there are much more useful uses of entanglement than just baffling people. Oh, okay, so, you're about to spell some out. Uh, yeah, so, so in fact, when you take these states, these entangled states of light, um, then, um, and you can use them to do the following funky thing, which is that um, if I want to, say, detect something that's out there, say there's an object out there, there's an ob not an object out there, so I send one of these photons out. If there's no object, it just goes away forever. If there's some object, it bounces back right. with some tiny probability. Mm -hmm. And there's also a bunch of noise around. Then you can ask, look at the photons that are coming back and say, are you entangled with the photon I kept here? And it turns out that if the answer is yes, then it's much more likely to be the photon you sent out. Mm. So you can enhance the so-called signal-to-noise ratio of this measurement by many you know, factors of 10 or 100,000 by using these entangled photons. Applications of this might be what? Well, I mean, um, long-distance imaging. I mean, a long-distance detection of things, you know, uh, uh, places with names like DARPA mm -hmm. and are interested in that of kind course. of thing. What else? What other kinds of things can you do with this sort of precision? Um, actually, you can use it actually for microscopy. So, it, it, And it would be quite useful for medical imaging in the sense that um, optical medical imaging is hard because, you know, my skin is opaque, right? So people do use optical imaging, but you have to be worried about if you put in too much laser light, then you'll damage the tissue. Mm -hmm. If you can enhance the signal-to-noise ratio by 100,000, then you can use, you know, only 0.01% of the number of photons to do the same kind of detection, so you could do uh, less invasive optical imaging. That's the kind of thing that, that, I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think? What, what should we do with it? 
Well, I mean, you, you, it's open to anybody. I you, you, you've got this well-funded institute, and it's it's uh, sort of doing quantum computing, but it's doing quantum other stuff. Say more yeah. about this range of other stuff that you see coming. Well, actually, this you know this kind of um, uh, look. I, I said before, everything is quantum mechanical, but some things are more quantum mechanical than others. If you look at things like sensing and communication, or making atomic clocks, right? So the world's most accurate clock, in fact, the world's most accurate measurement device is Dave Wineland's quantum logic mm -hmm. atomic clock at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, in Boulder. And it operates by using entanglement mm -hmm. between, between electron spins and between electronic states, the states of atoms. It exchanges it back and forth, and so it can build an atomic clock that, you know, that would, would lose a tiny fraction of a second in the age of the universe. It's by, you know, it was when they built it, it was by, it was, it was again, 100,000 times more precise and accurate than the previous atomic clocks. And this is actually just using these funky quantum effects like entanglement. And that kind of stuff makes GPS work better, or makes everything work better to have that extra level of capability. Right? Yeah, well, I mean, actually, it's so accurate. In fact, it's, it's, you know, atomic clocks are extremely important for things like GPS. You couldn't have GPS without atomic clocks because you need to measure the timing of signals that are going from satellites to you to within um, a billionth of a second, a billionth of a second is light travels about that distance in a billionth of a second, a third of a meter. And, um, and so to measure your distance to this kind of accuracy, you need to have clocks that can measure out time to a billionth of a second, and those are atomic clocks. Mm -hmm. Now, these, these, uh, these optical frequency atomic clocks, this quantum logic atomic clocks, measures out time to within an accuracy of a femtosecond. So a billionth of a second is 10 to the minus ninth second. Mm -hmm. Now these are 10 to the minus 15 seconds, so they're a million times more accurate. Mm -hmm. So that you could actually measure, you know, your distance to within a micron, or something like that, a millionth of a meter. Um, actually, they're so accurate that it's kind of a problem because they they can detect one of the most faintest faintest signals of general relativity is the gravitational redshift, which says that if a clock's in a gravitational field, it will slow down. And so if they raise the clock up by this much, it will detect the fact that the gravitational field of the Earth is very slightly less strong at this level than it is at that level. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a little too precise. <laughs> it's not for everybody. <laughs> that, that's the holy shit cackle I just really go around in. I mean, it wasn't in the original Whole Earth Catalog, but I mean, the new version, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a couple of years ago, you did a book, I think it was called Programming the Universe. Yeah. Uh, which suggested that the universe is a quantum computer, in a sense. Um, do you still hold to that? Yeah, I mean, I actually don't. I, I don't suggest it. I just simply declare it. I mean, it, it's. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 demonstrably true. Look, the 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 here's 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 the evidence. I mean, this this is really just a technical question. I mean, either a system is capable of universal computation or it's not. Hmm. Okay, so universal computation has a technical definition. It means it can do whatever a digital computer can do or a Turing machine with uh, potentially infinitely extensible memory. Okay, so it's a technical definition. Now, the laws of physics are quantum mechanical Mm -hmm. And they're capable of computation. I mean, I have a computer for God's sake. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's computing. Actually, that's your computer. I'll take it with me when I go. By the way, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, so <clears throat> they support universal computation. The laws of physics support universal computation, and they're doing it in a quantum mechanical way because quantum mechanics is what guarantees the stability of atoms. You know, the existence of elementary particles, the fact that we have molecules that undergo chemical reactions. It's all quantum mechanical. So. The universe is quantum mechanical, and it's performing universal computation. It's performing computation in a quantum mechanical fashion. 
I rest my case. I mean, I don't really want to see why it's an argument. <laughs> so will quantum computers help us grok the universe? That's croc with a Q R O C A, please. <laughs> or maybe croc. Maybe maybe right. maybe. Yeah, I'm, like sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Stuart. Grok Q, right? We, we, we grok Q, the G R O Q, the yeah. universe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually. So so. I mean, why am I out there building quantum computers? Uh, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I, it's a job. Right? It's a nasty, dirty job. <laughs> Somebody's got. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. You know, it's quantum mechanics out down there in the pits. You know. You are in the mechanics <laughs> department. At yeah. Harvard. We have quantum mechanics. That's yeah. right. You know, if you, your quanta are broke. We fix them, and we charge a lot of money too. By the way. <laughs> no. I mean, actually, my interest in this. Um, I I got interested not because I was interested in factoring large number, or, like striking fear in the heart of agencies with three letters in their names. That's a dangerous thing to do, don't do it. Um, uh, but it's actually because, I mean, I started doing this before they had Shor's algorithm this, and because I was interested in how information is out there in the universe and how quantum mechanical systems are actually processing information. I mean, I think this gives us real powerful insights into how the universe is put together. I mean, you know, back in the, the Enlightenment, you know, in the 1600s, one of the great inspirations for the Enlightenment was Galileo discovering the basis for the pendulum clock. Mm -hmm. I was just in Pisa a few weeks ago. I saw the original clock where the, the, it's actually the lamp in the cathedral in Pisa, which when it was going back and forth, Galileo realized that the the period didn't change. Even as the amplitude gets smaller, the period remained the same. Mm -hmm. He said, ah, you could make a clock out of that. Ah. And then he did. So he designed a pendulum clock. And it was such a remarkable thing. And it had such a transformative effect on society because, you know, the notion that you could actually tick out time on the level of seconds rather than figuring out time passing on the level of hours. Um, Oh. was actually quite amazing. So that's a case where precision changes everything. Increase in precision changes everything. It changes a great deal. And also, but it had such a powerful effect on people's minds. They said, oh, let's think of the world as if it were clockwork. Mm -hmm. And that insight was one of the insights that, that when Newton came along, he said, let us think of the world as if it were a machine, mechanistic. Mm -hmm. And we know how machines behave. They obey these, these regular laws, F equals MA. You know, mm -hmm. Galileo's law for motion, for gravitational motion. Mm -hmm. Let's think of the universe as a machine and see what comes out. And what came out was all of physics. Mm -hmm. you know, that was a very powerful, even if it's just a metaphor, it's a very powerful metaphor. So now we actually have in the 20th century, 21st century, that was the 20th century when I started, you know, then we have another machine, which is a computer, which is a powerful way of what's understanding what's going on. But to understand what's really going on, we know that the world is quantum mechanical. So if we want to understand things in terms of information processing as most fundamental level, we have to think of quantum information processing. We have to think of quantum computation. So I actually regard these quantum computers as, in fact, as ways, as devices that help us to understand what's going on the most fundamental level. And to give an example, I mean, about starting about, you know, 20 years ago, I started saying, hey, let's look at this problem of quantum gravity in terms of quantum computation. I mean, quantum gravity is famously something nobody understands what it's doing. Stephen Hawking has you know, figured out the only thing we really know, which is that black holes use some funky quantum effect based on entanglement to actually radiate. That's about the only thing we know about quantum gravity. Okay. No, unless you're a string theorist, in which case you know everything about quantum gravity, but, but you're not telling. Right. right. So. <laughs> and the so, experiments aren't doing much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, ahead. but the thing is, now it's become clear over the last few years, I mean, 
and, and people started thinking about this a while ago, as I mentioned, that if you think about uh, quantum gravity in terms of entanglement and in terms of quantum information processing, you can understand things about how black holes evaporate. So my colleagues and I have done experiments to look at what's called black hole scrambling, to look at what happens to quantum information as it falls into black holes and how it could come out. So you know, you could have a little quantum computer which effectively is a black hole in a lab, which is good because when you try to make a real black hole, no, the lab, they're, 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 yeah, they're workplace safety people. They're just all <laughs> over you, like little minds, you know. <laughs> What's wrong with having a black hole in the lab? For God's sake! <laughs> I can think of a few things. Yeah. Anyway, quantum computer that simulates a black hole in a lab—that's probably as close as we're. Simulating is better there. Yeah. So your last book, uh, we had a declaration about the universe. Uh, do you have a next book in you? Yeah, I've actually, in fact, I've, I've, I've just, uh, uh, again, for the same reasons I wrote the first book, which is Need of Money. Um, <laughs> no, that's not entirely true, right? <laughs> it's a similar thing. I mean, actually, I wrote the first book because, in fact, I, I do think this is a, thinking about the universe in terms of how it computes and how it computes at a quantum mechanical level really gives a lot of insight into why the universe is here and what's going on. So uh, my next book is uh, um, about, it was inspired by finance, but more kind of the losing money side. During the financial crisis, I don't know about people out there, but I watched my already meager life savings go And it was very frustrating for me and for everybody. And there was no haven even for the very wealthy. And I said, what can I do about this? There's nothing. Then I said, well, you know, maybe if I made a theory about this, I'd feel better. <laughs> if I could understand it, even if there's nothing I can do. So I was working actually on these problems of, about black hole formation and stellar collapse and origins of the universe. And I realized that in these gravitational systems, there's a, you know, you have this funny phenomenon. You have positive energy and matter and energy. And then you have negative energy and gravitation. These cancel each other out. So the energy of the universe is zero. Wait a minute. How come gravity is negative and these other things are positive? Where does that come from? It's because gravity sucks. <laughs> when you have attractive force, it has negative energy. Not in the kind of sense like, whoa, your negative energy is really turning me off. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bringing us down. Not right. in that sense. <laughs> it's just like you measure energy and it's negative. Okay. So it's negative, and then Newton, this is in Newton, I mean, it's like Newtonian gravity, the attractive energy of the gravitational field is neg negative, kinetic energy of matter and stars is positive, okay. and even in Newtonian gravity, the energy of the universe is exactly zero. Okay. And um, you know, the negative energy counterbalances, in the gravitation counterbalances positive energy and matter. Okay. Now, this feature of, of having this counterbalance of positive and negative energy, when you combine it with information processing, you get something really cool, which is actually responsible for everything we see around us. It means that at the Big Bang, when everything was just all at the same temperature, you'd think, gosh, how boring. Everything's all at the same temperature, albeit billions of degrees, which is actually not boring. It's too exciting. Um, but uh, uh, then, you know, under ordinary circumstances, everything's at the same temperature. It's going to remain at the same temperature forever, and it would be really dull. But that's not what happened. You know, what happened is that as the universe cooled down, all of a sudden things started clumping. You know, the seeds for galaxies started forming seeds for, for, for swirling clouds of matter that would form stars and the Earth and solar well, where systems. Where did that lack of uniformity come from? Well, it's because in these systems, if you look at them in terms of information processing, when you have this positive and negative energy, there's a fundamental instability in which this kind of homogeneity is not stable. Some kind of granularity will form? 
Yeah, there's a, a natural tendency for things to self-organize. Ah. And this is great for the universe. I mean, it makes the universe a much nicer place. Like, you know, there's all these nice restaurants in San Francisco. <laughs> all this variation and variety. Mm -hmm. you know, chefs thinking about what they can do over here or over there. You know, there's so all this kind of, you know, this interesting complexity and computation that's going on in the universe comes from this fundamental instability. Now, the problem is this instability goes the other way around. So if you look at black hole formation, what happens is things get so dense that the negative energy of gravitation overwhelms the positive energy of the matter, and there's this huge sucking sound and a gigantic explosion because it makes a supernova as the star collapses. Mm -hmm. Anyway, at the, at, during the financial collapse, I said, you know, you watch these big investment banks like tottering around, overwhelmed by their negative energy of their debts, and some of them imploded, forming like supernovas of like failed careers and junk bonds and things like that. I said, you know, this is kind of similar. And then, if you look at it more closely, you actually find that, you know, you just do a theory of things that have positive and negative stuff, be mm -hmm. it energy or money, you know, positive mm -hmm. energy and assets, negative energy and debt. And you look at how they process information. Mm -hmm. They're intrinsically unstable, which in, is great for the universe. In the case of stellar formation, is great. Mm -hmm. If you were Lehman Brothers on the way up, it was great. Mm -hmm. You know, you were leveraged at 32 to 1, but what the heck, the money keeps flowing in. But the problem is that these systems are also, you know, it's one of these what goes up can come down kinds of things. And when it does come down, it's bad, right? So mm -hmm. it has this fundamental creative force in this instability for making the universe, for you know, acquiring assets, but then also it's a destructive force. You can also get overwhelmed by the negative energy and then huge sucking sound. Anyway, the whole reason for this is to write a paper called The Black Hole of Finance, right? I mean, that's the only reason to do this. Is that, yeah. the, is that the title of the book? No. No, no, because no. actually the book is, it's, it, that's really, though of course it's largely about this for fun, it's also about the origins of life because um, we don't understand anything about the origins of life, really. I mean, as I mentioned before, we know much less about the origins of life than we know about the origins of the universe. That's an astonishing thing to say. You know? I mean, it's true. It's true, yeah. Well, I mean, I it's true. I mean, I'm but it's an astonishing it. thing to be true. I know. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but you're going to fix it. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I mean, it's very, we don't, I, I don't think we are going to, for the reasons you were describing before, right, that life is very complicated right now, and it's been very complex for, for, for billions of years. Right. Okay? And by improvising and putting together all these different structures, it's covered its tracks extremely well. I think it's very unlikely that we're going to look at living systems now and be able to tease out what these prebiotic mechanisms were, you know, the chemical reactions that got uh, together, yeah. started computing, started mm. self-reproducing. That's going to be very tough. But it's very conservative. Once it sort of invents DNA, uh, you know, that's it. It doesn't start doing triple strands. It just you know, really, really sticks with stuff. And the basics of metabolism seem to be really, really, really basic, and yeah. everything living has it. Yeah, but getting to that point, you know, getting to the point where you have cells with DNA, mm -hmm. you know, that's reproducing with these mechanisms. I mean, you look at all these incredibly intricate mechanisms that go into reproduction of DNA. Where the heck did that come from? Okay. That, people just don't know that. So what, what have you got on that? Where, what are you looking at to discern what's there? <laughs> look, I don't have a theory. I think, I, as I was saying, I think theories about the origins of life are, are, are suspect. But I do have a story. Okay. okay. <laughs> I mean, well, let's we'll be end with this story of life. <laughs> well, so I mean, we have these chemical reactions. You know, we have 
chemicals are recombining to form other molecules, recombine to form other molecules. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this natural tendency for molecules to form in the first place from this kind of what I call this information edge. When one part of the system gets an edge on the other, it starts sequestering information and free energy. Mm -hmm. That's why molecules form in the first place. And once they start interacting with each other, you know, you have molecule A interacts with molecule B to form molecule C. So we have a situation where C is only produced if A is there and B is there. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an AND gate, right? If A and B are there, then you get C. If only A is there, or only B is there, or if neither is there, you don't get C. Mm -hmm. So you get C only if A and B. And then you can have other operations where if either A is there or if B is there, then it will produce C. This sounds like basic computation so far. Yeah, so the basic equations that govern chemical reactions mm. and the equations that govern things like logic gates mm. are one and the same. And that's, this is, of course, why the metabolism of a cell works in the first place, right? You know, when some molecule comes in from the outside, then it gets into the membrane of the cell. Let's say it gets through the membrane inside the cell. And then this molecular, this uh, reaction start taking place that say, if this molecule is present, mm -hmm. then we start up this mechanism to start to, you know, take it apart and digest it, and then we need to bring in these other things. But these are simple kind of logical operations that say you can encode them in this metabolism. They come because the chemical reactions and logical operations are basically the same. So, so my goal in, the, in the, the, this, the story is that because we have these chemicals, they're interacting and they're spontaneously computing, that they can actually start coming up with more and more complicated ways of responding to what's going on in the same way that we ha can have computer programs that come up with more complicated ways and that adapt to the kinds of information that's coming in. I mean, the, but that's just What is it that fundamentally welcomes complexity? Why would it tend in the direction of greater complexity? Welcome complexity? Speak for yourself, my man. Some of us welcome simplicity. A plus B equals C, and then pretty soon yeah. you run out of the alphabet because there's so many different things doing that, and then so many yeah. different things doing that. In the billions of years, it gets more and more and more and more complicated, and you can't reverse engineer it because it was never engineered in the first place. So uh, you know, what are we saying? Why is that? This is sort of a Kevin Kelly question. You know, yeah. wh What is that trend that wants more complexity? Yeah. Well, maybe we should ask Kevin, because I don't know the answer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, well, I don't know. But in, in, there, there are tantalizing hints about this, right? So, so we do know that if you take these kinds of logical operations, as Boole showed you know, 170 years ago, you can build up any arbitrarily complicated transformations of information out of you know, and, or, not, and copy operations. Mm -hmm. We also know that very simple sets of chemical reactions, when put together, can build up sequences of and, or, not, okay. copy operations. So, and then, you know, it could be, and again, now this is storytelling time here, but, um, mm. you know, so suppose they're performing some simple set of operations, and then you have stimuli from the environment. Mm -hmm. Now what you need is something that says, okay, the ones that are better at maintaining themselves against stimuli in the environment, those are the ones that actually keep on going. Right. The ones that just dissipate into nothingness upon the stimuli in the environment, mm -hmm. those aren't around any longer. Now you have adaptation, and adaptation in a system that's capable of generating greater complexity. I mean, it sounds, sounds nice. I mean, you haven't fallen asleep yet. No, I didn't. <laughs> I understand. Though a good bedtime story is a good story, too. <laughs> well, you know, it, if math and physics and astrophysics and the understanding of life all converge, 
which is what we're talking about here. This is one bodacious renaissance we're in the thick of. <laughs> that would be a true renaissance. I mean, I'm still waiting for the, true, the, the second renaissance to come around. I think apps alone are not going to cut it. But, uh, but I think human beings, you know, may be empowered by apps. <laughs> well, thank you for bringing on the renaissance. Thank you. And thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.